Sightsee, Sea Star, Sea Jelly, Vermicelli. These that please, shapes that taste, or maybe prickle the belly. Hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene, the podcast where we imagine a beautiful, sustainable, tactile future, and where every week Aaron opens us with a poem that alludes to the topic of the day. Right. Do you think this one does? Not especially. Okay. Because today we are going to be talking about a bit of a history of fashion and working our way towards the future of fashion in terms of innovations and key moments that shaped the fashion landscape. I pretty much just went through history and thought about different shapes I liked and mm. which ones would be more highlighted in the solo scene. And this poem is all about shapes, shapes yeah. that taste nice. Or maybe prickle the belly. Can be good, could be bad. Sea star, painful to eat. But it would be. It would be. Maybe there are some edible, I don't know. But very pretty shapes. And so I've just been on the the train of thoughts of, I guess in a in a kind of architectural way about golden ratios and shapes that we just like to look at. You know how people always talk about fashion in eras, and yeah. that's kind of what inspired this conversation today, and how subjective things can seem when looked at through a historical lens, and it's like, well, every century or decade has a whole other design language when it comes to clothes. But I kind of disagree with that. The more I learn about fashion and fashion history, the more similar I think it tends to usually be. Mm. And the main reason for that is that it's always clothing the same shape, the human shape, the human, the land sea star. That's kind of what we are, the land stars. <laughs> land stars. We are stars. So I started... <laughs> <laughs> Superstars. I honestly forgot that we were like, originally inspired by eras because I didn't end up going by eras either. I went more by moments. Okay. Which are a bit less long-lasting than eras. Mine began in 3000-ish BC with in 1991 there were two German hikers hiking in the Italian Alps and they found this mummified person who had been frozen in the ice and then this person was excavated which would you call that maybe exhumated exhumated but he wasn't in a grave, but it probably is. Yeah, right word. yeah. <laughs> so he was taken out and studied and he was actually preserved wearing all of his clothes that he would have just been wearing mm. on his hike that he had gone on. He was probably a hunter. He was wearing goat skin leggings, a grass cape and these really famous boots. And the boots are what I want to talk about, because for those of you listening, you don't know, but Aaron has like a quest for the perfect shoe, one could say. Don't we all? We, it's true. Yeah. And it seems like this man, who is 5,000 years old, had found the perfect shoe because the shoes were studied using like whatever technology to figure out exactly what they were made out of. Right. And the shoes had a bare sole. They had calf skin and deer skin uppers. It's like the part that covers the top of your foot. Yeah. And the uppers were placed on top of a netting of braided linden bark. And guess what the the cushioning was? Moss <gasps> and hay. Wow. And so... It'd be kind of itchy though, wouldn't it? Apparently, these shoe historians recreated the shoe using like 3000 BC methods. So like yeah. they were using all these wacky tanning and sewing and construction methods. And then they wore them on the same hike, so like up the Alps, not an easy hike, Yes. and compared it with that experience with just normal hiking shoes, and apparently it was like a 10 out of 10 experience, whereas normal hiking shoes would be like a 5 out of 10. Like they were so much better insulating, cushioning, durability, and just were fantastic for wearing. Right. And I've learned about these infamous shoes in a video called Why Everything Sucks Now or something along those lines. <laughs> like, why clothes are so much worse. And it was definitely interesting because that's something you and I talk about quite a lot. Of yeah. why are things so much worse. 
so much worse. Yeah. It does beg the question of maybe not a very solacing question. What would you like to be buried in? Hmm. Like if they dug you up 3,000 years from now by the microphone as you were, you died doing what you loved on the pod. <laughs> not today, but yeah. you know, in 80 years. Um, I don't, it's hard to say. Probably just something really simple and white. You and I just watched Black Sabbath and there was like a really creepy witch being buried in like a dressing gown. <laughs> and I don't want to be buried like a creepy witch, but I think no, I like the dressing gown that, kind of thing. Yeah. My point's very scattergun today. Okay. So it's not exactly going to be like, we talk about the history and then we talk about the solo scene. I think it's more like we're talking about the past and drawing lessons as we go and painting a picture as we go, kind of. Mm-hmm. So shoes in the solo scene. Yeah. Something I feel quite strongly about. I don't like the word sneakers. That's one thing. Okay. Sneak is evil. It has a deceptive kind of... You think of Swiper from Dora. You think of Swiper. Yeah. In England, they call them trainers, which I also don't like because it's a little bit too like... So you're not training. Oh, go get your trainers. We're going to go to the shop. Yeah. It's like, we're not training for anything. So I think I'm down with what sneakers represent, which is we're finally putting... Or putting comfort first again, should I say, because it's not like this is Mm an innovation in human history. It's just in recent times that we've decided to shape our feet like just lines Mm -hmm. or arrows but I think they should be renamed and maybe recontextualized. Because what I don't like about them is, oh, you can't wear sneakers to X. You can't be comfortable here with yeah. your feet. So I think that's a little bit strange. And also, I was ranting to you this week, as is probably, it's probably entered like my top five most common rants. Mm, Do you think? Definitely. Foot, feet. Yeah. Just feet. About how people are anti foot shaped shoes. And they say, well, that looks bad. Mm. But this is kind of what I was getting at with the sea star and like shapes that we are just, we naturally, intuitively appreciate or enjoy. One of those is the human. It's true. We like the shape of humans, including human feet, naturally. Like we're not repulsed by them. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's pretty much marketing and conditioning that makes us think, oh, feet that, or shoes that look like feet, that's wacky. It's like, no, that's not wacky. That's normal. (laughs) Yeah, it is normal. And yeah, definitely. In the solo scene, there'll be way more bare feet, I think. Just like you can go barefoot if you want sort of thing. Because as I think you mentioned last week, I started climbing and there's just like everyone's barefoot. Really? Which is so like weird. I thought they were wearing shoes. When they're on the wall, but like when in between sets, they'll take their shoes off. They get in, they just kick off their shoes and everyone's barefoot. And it's like, (laughs) it it is a slightly weird because we're so not used to it, but it's like, Really, why do you need shoes in there? There's nothing sharp. You do a big climb that you've been struggling with for months and everybody yeah. claps when you reach the top except feet. they're clapping with their feet. <laughs> yeah. That was my so, hands for people listening. but Yeah, just they're not disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> but sneakers, though, that's an evil name. It is. And I'm thinking about the way that satanic language has maybe crept into our everyday lexicon. Mm. Oh, get your sneakers. Let's go sneak I'm in. a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but we should think about those things. Yeah, it's true. So in the solo scene, shoes, I think, will definitely be locally made because right now they're all globally made. And it's like, are these really reflecting the climate? Like, it's almost (laughs) impossible to buy shoes in Montreal that are, like, weatherproof. And it's like, they probably should all be weatherproof given that there's rain or snow for 50% of the year. Well, that touches on two things that I wanted to talk about. One is a very small point design principle in the solo scene. I don't like tiny text on clothes. Mm -hmm. And I think shoes sneakers globally produced athletic shoes is the are the biggest proponents of the tiny text mm-hmm. there's something about it that again it just seems and so seen it's too specific it's like oh let me grab a microphone a micro magnifying glass so i can read this guy's shoes yeah it's like, why does it say nike hyper technology in tiny font mm-hmm. like by the soul that's it's very strange point. right it's strange And the second that's maybe a bigger point is about tennis theory. Mm -hmm. For those who are the uninitiated, because I think this is, what, the 10th episode in fashion semester? Yeah. It's flying by, but we have coined this term tennis theory for why tennis is the most or one of the most fashionable sports. And that's that the clothes are often designed with the courts in mind. Solid color blue court, we're going to have Federer wearing this because it contrasts or it complements and so they wear different clothes 
often depending on the surface and different shoes also because I guess that's what touches the surface so that's maybe more important and so my biggest historical point for tennis theory my reference is pre-human times Mm -hmm. the world of fashion outside of mere men and women of the homo sapien variety okay I have on my notes a picture of two giraffes with a little zebra between them Mm. giraffes are very stylish of course. So to zebras. Yes. You say of course as if it's an obvious thing. It is though. It is an obvious thing. But they don't decide I'm going to grow my print like this. Mm-hmm. It's pure tennis theory, right? Yeah. The land around me looks like this, so I'll grow like this. Yeah. And why it looks so jarring seeing a polar bear in a zoo quite often. That's why they build those enclosures around them. I think it's as much for the animal's benefit as it is for ours. Because it's like that's where polar bears look best. Yes. They look most natural. They look most suited. Mm. Yeah, zebra is a funny example too because they're intentionally crazy looking. Yeah, to yeah, like they can be camouflage or they can be yeah. you know standing out. But yeah, I think it's cool because they wouldn't have grown crazy white and black stripes if they were in the Arctic because white would probably blend in quite a bit. But because they're on such a lush green, blue, yeah. I should have I should have brought it. I wrote the poem once that was called Penguins in the Serengeti, Lions on the Ice. Mm. And it was it was kind of like a climate change thing. But yeah. now the more I look back on it, I think it's a, an aesthetic judgment of things being where they shouldn't be in the natural world. I see. And especially about how beautiful it is when everything just looks cohesive. Kind of mm. like if you're walking around Montreal and you just see a cactus planted there. Yeah. Because at first you're like, oh, neat, cactus. But then when you really think about it, it's like, that Why? doesn't that just Why looks cactus? wrong. Yeah. Right? It looks it looks off. Mm-hmm. And obviously it wouldn't have naturally grown here because nature is the nature takes it as a like imperative. It's not even a choice. It just it just is tennis theory. Yeah. For Good us point. it's a choice. So I'm in the solo scene. More into biomimicry. Yeah, biomimic or just it's more just the fact that fashion. I don't think can be taken in isolation and it should be considered in conjunction with architecture, infrastructure, and just lifestyle. Mm. Yes. Mm, yes. Like for instance, if you're driving, if you're wearing clothes to go on a long drive versus to go on a long train ride, maybe you would, you know, think differently. Yeah. I think that's a good point. If you're biking to work. Biking, exactly. Or if you're taking the metro to work. If you're biking, you have to wear bright neon You have to, spandex. or else you won't actually be allowed on the bike. Well, the cotton is too uncomfortable, so people say, <laughs> to go to work. Yeah. My next point in history is 1840, the wedding of Queen Victoria. She's the one who just no, died. That's the other queen, oh. Elizabeth II. Okay. This is Queen Victoria in 1840. <laughs> she was marrying her cousin. Albert, and she was not the first by any means to wear a white wedding dress. However, she chose a white wedding dress as a way to showcase England, English made lace because that industry was dying and what the royals wore, and it's still probably to an extent, but it definitely used to be a big, bigger part was a way to promote certain industries or certain social movements or whatever. So she employed 200 lace makers to make her one wedding dress. Mm. And she felt white was the best color to showcase the lace. And because of the sensation that this dress caused, there was a lot of revisionist history in the women's magazines. Throwback to the magazine episode. But a lot of the women's periodicals and stuff were like, wow, white has always been the best color to wear to your wedding because it represents purity and it represents all of these different things that honestly, until that point, it never been set in stone. People would always wear, I mean, in the in the West, would wear their best dress. And then obviously all over the world, there were different customs. Yeah. But then in the last 200 years, the white wedding dress has proliferated the world with the help of those wedding TV shows. Say yes to the... I've never watched one of those, but yeah, so yes, I'm assuming to the you dress. were raised on them. Yes, of course. So that type of TV show. And then interesting enough, there were a few points between 1840 and now. People have kind of rebelled against the white wedding dress. Yes. So during the wars when there were rations of 
clothes and stuff. It was like, obviously, you're not going to go out and buy a brand new Mm-hmm. wedding dress infamously there were people who would like sew their own out of parachutes or sew their own out of just like curtains or bedding that they might have but a lot of people just wore their nicest outfit but then after the war during the kind of 50s in america trying to revive the economy the government and media really pushed the image of the white wedding dress to get people to shop more and so it revived then for a bit but then really recently it's weird because Say Yes to the Dress, I think it was called like My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding on TLC. Like there were a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of wedding shows, five weddings. I watched them all. I know. <laughs> You've never <laughs> told me this, but I just, I can tell. You can tell that about me. There were, so there were a lot of wedding shows and telling you that you had to have these big weddings. But then post COVID, interestingly enough, you and I got married in that era so I feel like we were some of the trailblazers. In Hashtag this. pandemic wedding. Yeah. <laughs> of people being like, wait, I don't need to spend $50,000 in my wedding. I can just like get married and it'd be nice and actually be more about the the ceremony and st- like the, the significance of it instead of the party sort of thing. And a lot of people recently have been DIYing their dresses. They've been doing them secondhand. And again, just not necessarily wearing the white wedding dress. And I think this short little history that I just gave is a good Solacene example of how we can kind of rebel against standards that maybe were just set in the first place to make sales. So like with Queen Victoria, it was kind of to make sales for the lace makers. And then in the 90s, when it really like, there was just a boom because a bunch of designers started making wedding dresses. So until that point, it was a bit more like less institutionalized you'd still kind of just get your wedding dress made Mm -hmm. by a local tailor or there'd be like a box store like sears would just kind of have a bunch of wedding dresses but they weren't necessarily calvin klein or yeah associated with one designer i think i like the term evolve maybe more than rebel because to me rebel has a kind of not mean-spirited but antagonistic connotation to it and what you just described with the wedding dresses i don't necessarily think it's rebelling well if it was rebelling i suppose it would be against the idea of the marketing mm-hmm. and the the big forces trying to program people into thinking this mm-hmm. but the idea of the wedding the purity the niceness the the tradition of it basically i feel like people wouldn't be rebelling against that you know what i mean like no, you but still it'd be, yeah redesigning i suppose or I guess if it's rebelling, then it's against maybe the absolute uniformity of those things. Like I wouldn't call someone who made their own dress rebelling against something or who wore a beige one or a red one necessarily rebelling. Mm. Something that I do think is nice here in the solo scene is the idea of not necessarily a uniform, but a an elevated custom. Let's call mm. it that. So you said for the wedding... It wasn't always the case that people wore white and still isn't everywhere. Really, it's been a, a brief period in which the white wedding dress has been, you know, the standard. Mm-hmm. But always there has been a standard. Yeah. Kind of. There always, or, or should I say, a degree of significance placed on it. So he said, even when people weren't even buying anything new, they would wear their best. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of the solacing principle that I'm trying to talk about. Something that we have been disgusting recently i suppose in design is the three percent rule which is that for something to look really nice and even really new sometimes you just have to change it like three percent from what's already the mainstream Mm. so i feel like that's kind of in play here as well yeah definitely and and there's a few things still on this topic that i think we should talk about one is the also re-wearing of the dress which has become popular in the last 10 years or so of people buying dresses that are maybe two pieces or after the wedding, getting it tailored to be like turned into a bit more of a casual look. Yeah, you can keep it for the next wedding. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but you could then maybe wear it on your anniversary, people yes, do. Yes. Or traditionally, people who would wear white wedding dresses like in the early days, they would also wear it for christenings. It also used to not be the rule that you didn't wear white to the wedding. Even like that's very recent because it used to be at least the bride and the bridesmaids would wear white. No, I think that's 
that's always struck me as a very weird marketing and insecure thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's like maybe you can wear it to another wedding. The bridezilla. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, I understand. Had I been at my wedding and someone showed up in like their wedding dress, I'd be like, what? Their wedding dress? If it was just a white shirt. It's yeah, like, all right, exactly. whatever. What's going on here? Were you a bridezilla? Is that, that's the term, right? Yeah, that is the term. The husbandzilla. Yes. <laughs> or the groomzilla, I mean. Yeah, I guess you'd be... And another part of wedding dresses is like, yeah, the homogeneity and kind of like the proliferation of this Western trend all over the world. And I was reading a bit about solar punk design theory. And one of the five tenets of it is localized designs. So looking to traditional patterns, prints, cuts when you're designing a solar punk garment. And I thought that was really cool. And wedding dresses is another way of that of like, yeah, in Japan, they're going to wear kimonos to their weddings. And in Africa, they have like a different pattern and different cut and style that they're going to wear depending on the region. And I think that's a solacine principle of like when you're designing clothes, we can't like prescribe it. We can't say this is what people wear in the solacine because that's just not a part of it. Like it's going to always be different. I think we'll always be honoring traditions and different designs and stuff. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned solar punk. And I guess for first time listeners... We'll just describe what that is. Yeah, good good idea. Very briefly, I guess that's a primarily online aesthetic, which was a strong inspiration for the solo scene, but isn't it entirely? I guess that's kind of our, it's a proper noun versus just like a more common noun, I suppose, mm-hmm. or a descriptive uh, or an adjective. And it's kind of like the pretty environmental version of cyberpunk, which is usually shown as very corporate and technological and dystopian. So you can kind of look into it, see what it's all about. But that was also a question that we would, kind of toying with this week about what would the design be in the solar scene using the solar punk principles. Mm-hmm. And I just talked about maybe the wedding dresses is not the place for rebellion all the time, but there are other situations like another historical point that I wanted to make was about big things, big clothes, mm-hmm. shape-wise. I see. I think that big or impractical capes or tunics or cloaks, or those massive hats that people used to wear. Those have obviously all gone gone by the wayside today. But I think a vaguely solar punk principle, because you are kind of rebelling against being given a an expectation of wearing all practical, tight-fitting, often athleisure clothes, could just be to wear a massive hat with like a piece of pumpkin pie on the top of it. Okay. Statement pieces. Statement, but necessarily the size of it. Yeah. A big cape. Yeah, why not? Because even in superhero movies today, you can see the way over the last like 50 years, they've gone from outlandish comic book, you know, Batman's just dressing around ridiculous and to looking more and more militaristic. This is what's practical. Mm. But it's like the whole joy of a cape to me is that it's kind of impractical. Like I said with the garment of the week, was it last week? Your cape. Yeah. And you're like, well, I can't wear it here, here. Can't wear a backpack with it. Can't use my hands when I'm wearing it. But it's like, <laughs> that's kind of the fun. Yeah. And I know that this is talking about people in the past who are primarily very affluent, right? Like that's mm-hmm. who could afford literally and, and figuratively to wear things like that. But we're all pretty affluent today. Like this is the most affluent people like you and I have ever been. We can just sit around recording into the podcast wearing whatever. Yeah. And we have air conditioning or heated buildings. So you barely even have to have to dress for the weather quite often. Um, and still we wear the most boring clothes. Mm. So big things. Yeah. Jumbo. Why not? Especially just like spikes. House. Okay. Spikes. Big helmet with spikes on it. Yeah. That's a very solar punk thing, I think. Because whenever you see people like... This is my solar punk wardrobe. It's always cape. The shape. It's a sh- changing the shape of the yeah. person or um, or shoulder pads mm. or, I don't know, just like a, a big belt that's like a, like a rubber floaty in a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> One that just protrudes to make you look like Saturn. Yeah, and that's how you like keep. I keep people away from you. Your space, yeah. Keep the police away from you. Well, it's the punk. It's the anarchy of it. But also maybe there's a there's a kind of climate changiness to this where big hats, you know, people need shade. Perhaps. 
Yeah. I do think hats, that's going to, you know, within the next two years, TikTok, yeah. summer girls will be up. like, oh, this is old money. Mm. And it'll just be a big hat. Yeah, we were watching a movie last night and one, one of the characters had a hat and I looked at it and I was like, is that Kale? And I think she might have had Kale on her hat. So, really? Yeah. There was a, you know, Doctor Who? Yeah. One of the doctors just wore a stick of celery on his chest. There we go. So, Just think precedent. outside the box is the solo scene lesson from that one. This is a much more practical solo scene lesson, but a moment for the gusset. Do you know what a gusset is? Isn't that like a windpipe? Something you breathe out of? Mm, that might also be another word for it. But it's a piece of triangular, usually fabric, and it goes in parts of the clothes where you're not square-shaped. So it's like under the arms, there'll be like a triangle of fabric yeah. in older pieces. And then in pants, there's gussets and there's a gusset in socks. But basically, the gusset was designed because when people were cutting fabric, there's no actual date for it because it's just kind of like ancient. They didn't want to waste it, always cut on like the grain of the fabric mm -hmm. and cut it in rectangles so that there'd be less waste and cutting a circular armhole would be wasteful. Yes. So they do a triangle to kind of make it circular and like fit the human. But it's also in parts of clothes that often get worn down. Like underarms are probably the first place to go when you're looking at a garment like this is kind of ratty. Mm -hmm. But because there's this piece of fabric there, you could pick it out and then just replace it. Yeah. And then the piece would look brand new. And with industrialization, the gusset was basically eradicated in shirts mostly because it was, we found we didn't mind wasting fabric, and we also wanted to make clothes obsolete faster. So we stopped. There's the gusset that was removed, but it's also fabric. When you'd make a shirt, there used to be a bit left over in the seams. They'd kind of like fold it in, um, in a French seam or otherwise, so that mm, this is doesn't fit me exactly right. I'm going to let it out a little bit, yeah, or I'm going to take it in a little bit. But because all of our clothes are surged on the seams, so if you like look at the shirt you're wearing, you'll notice it's just like there's the seam, then there's like an eighth of an inch yes. where it's surged, and that's all that string that you see. And if you were to try and take that apart, it would basically mean you couldn't make a change. And that's a way to use less fabric in some ways, which is good, but it also means... It's less adjustable less suggestible you know what yeah. it reminds me of that i've always been surprised is still a thing because it seems like a weirdly nice solar punk um design add-in which is the extra button that shirts have it's true it's like you'd think companies wouldn't even give you this anymore yeah but it's a good thing they do but it maybe it's nice. it's a bad thing that i'm praising them for that because <laughs> how much does a button cost yeah well a nice one maybe yeah but i just think in the solar scene clothes will be kind of designed to move with you and be repaired amended even these like kind of first step of the road even if it's a brand new garment it will have these things built in because also like we change shape throughout our lives it's like you kind of want to be able to take your clothes in as you change maybe or like hand them down to someone and they're a slightly different shape than you and they can yeah have the room to change it without it looking so diy like if you start shrinking yeah reminds me of the garment of the week also ba da 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 ba da 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 ba the garment of the week is the Patagonia fleece button-up tee. So this is tea. one of it's called a tee on the oh. on the website. It's called yeah the the fleece button-up tee. I thought you said it was cinchilla, fake fake cinchilla. Well, that's the what it's made of. Okay, of cinchilla. And I was going to get to this because one of my historic points was the discovery of polyester or right. nylon, which was the first synthetic fiber but we can get to this now because i know you've been chomping at the bit to talk about well, this sweater obviously i jumped the gun but it was because you were talking about replacements and i know that patagonia will 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 give you the metaphorical gullets right like if you have yeah. holes in it or something because it has a warranty mm -hmm. or they'll like make new ones out of old pieces i think sometimes that's why some of them look so patchwork yeah. and also because this has just been kind of like my false god that's a much of an exaggeration, but I just I like these jumpers. I think everybody does. They're very yet, warm. They're very warm. It's been uh, it's been making me have a, a somewhat something of a crisis, something of an epiphany regarding like reevaluating how I think about brands and status in general. 
Mm. But that's for another part. Yeah. So the Cinchilla, it was it was designed in 1985 because Yvonne Schwinard, who was the founder of Patagonia, he had a sweater like this, but it was made of wool. And wool, when it gets wet, gets very heavy. It doesn't dry quickly and it gets very cold when it's wet. Mm. So he wanted to find a material that dried quickly, didn't hold water, and remained warm when wet. And basically, he found this. It's called pile fabric, which I had never heard of, but that's what this is, is pile fabric. He found some of it in like a showroom in Canada in the 70s, but then just bought it and just kind of left it in his workshop didn't do anything with it and then a little later on in 1981 his wife was at a fabric show in la and found a fabric like this intended for toilet seat covers do you remember toilet seat covers were those a thing when you were growing up yeah i mean we grew up at the same time so but i mean you were (laughs) with the almost exact same age (laughs) but i didn't know if they were a thing in in the uk yeah in the in the stone you know the land of no no tech there I thought they might have been a bit above putting cozies on the toilet seats. But anyway, so it was intended for toilet seat covers to make them nice and cozy when you're sitting on them. Oh, I you sit those. on those parts? Yeah. No, 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 no. Like around the... No, 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 yeah. no. Not around the... I know. I just know them decorative on the top. Oh, no, my no, friend. I do not like the idea of <laughs> that this. That was the most... <laughs> We're going to move on because that's the grossest that solar scenes probably ever got. <laughs> okay, so it was designed for one of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, As you can imagine, not intended to hold water. The donut. And <laughs> so they kind of had these, like, okay, we want something like this. But then there's this mill in in America that for hundreds of years made fleece. But then these guys were like, let's make a fake fleece out of plastique. Yeah. And they called it polar fleece. And it was the first synthetic fleece, which now if you type in fleece, fleece jumper, it just comes up with plastic. Well, it's I, almost impossible. I guess it was, it was dumb of me, but I didn't. I thought these were wool. I'd, I'd never touched one. So I just saw people wearing them. I always mm-hmm. thought they were natural. And then I was like, wait, this one's plastic. Wait, they're all plastic. Yeah, they're Why all is it plastic. Called, like they've completely co-opted the word fleece. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah, like it's almost impossible to find fleece. And there's a few other like words associated with it that it's like you cannot find just a real one. Yeah. And you and I spent a decent amount of time yesterday looking. So Patagonia, it's funny because it's like we it's innocuous in our head that we associate Patagonia with the fleece, but they literally did invent it, or yeah, like yeah. help invent it, which is kind of interesting. And interesting enough, within 10 years, so in 1993, they were like, mm, feels kind of weird to be using all this virgin plastic. So they immediately, like pretty close after they invented the fleece, they started trying to recycle plastic bottles into them. And the first Patagonia fleeces that were using recycled were the same color as the bottles. And I found one on Poshmark going for like $500 and it's called the 7-Up or like the Sprite fleece or something like that and it's just like neon like a mountain dew bottle Yowza. and it's kind of funny but then they yeah it's so like it's interesting because they did set the goal of using 100 percent recycled materials or like recycled plastics in the next few years and they're on their way to do that but it's cool at least they started early but the yeah. reason we chose this is because we realized how much it sheds it's rather worrying from a health perspective yeah I felt like you were getting cancer through the bloodstream or something. Yeah, me too. So we might not keep this around much longer because the amount of microplastics, and you can see them because of the color of this one. Yeah. It's a bit concerning. But that's that's what concerns me because there's the stuff you can see. Yeah. There's more, probably double that that you can't see that actually is microplastic. Yeah. So it's it's very cursed, really. It is. So. But they look so cool. I like the shape of them. they're very warm and they're dry. They keep you dry. I like the cinch, cinchua. Maybe that's also. Mm, yeah. Cinchilla. They cinch. <laughs> they do cinch. It's true. Okay, so since we're talking about synthetics, I chose synthetics and recycled fibers, and I chose that as a point in history before we even chose the jumper, so it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing. But nylon was the first synthetic fiber invented in 1935, and now 64% of our garments are synthetic. And I also wanted to mention textile recycling like obviously we've been upcycling but literally recycling like breaking down and then reconstituting fibers that dates back to the 18th century during the napoleonic war because there was a virgin wool shortage so they were reconstituting yeah wool and it's cool because it's just like why not 
Wool especially is easy to reconstitute because it's just like you can do it basically by hand. Like for anyone who knits or crochets, when you're joining two skeins of yarn together, you can just like fuzzy it up in your hand, put it together with some water and just rub it and then it just becomes one. So it's like kind of cool. And it's weird to me that it wasn't invented before that because it's kind of so, so simple. But yeah, that's when it was kind of industrialized, I should say, because... Before then, yeah, people probably knew how to do it, but it was like on an industrial scale that they were like, we're going to recycle our garments. And obviously, that is a very Solacene principle. Yeah. Probably my biggest historical principle is maybe maybe you would even struggle to call it historical, a little bit more ahistorical, but it's all that's been lost through time rather than any specific year or innovation is rather the fact that i think probably well yeah probably 90 percent of clothes there's just no trace of no trace of them like they break down within like 30 years i struggled on that number because i feel like we're pumping out more clothes now than ever before yeah but through human history that's billions of years it's probably 90 percent of clothes yeah it's probably a lot a lot of clothes and i think that's actually really wonderful thing i was reminded of the poem ozymandias by shelley you know which is about the the crumbled civilization or a temple or, or monuments that are lost through time and people stumble over them in the desert not realizing what they once used to be right mm. and with architecture we have that with ruins and you can go to athens and see the parthenon and be like man that was massive like that was that was splendor and you can live in the literally in the shadow of it but with clothes, it's all washed away to time. And I think that's that's really probably for the best. Because this is the first time this, you know, is a bigger conversation than just fashion. But we're in the first time that things are just being documented, 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 archived. And we don't know for the long-term effects that has on humans. Yeah, and art, you know, creativity, I think, psyches. Exactly. I feel like... It might almost be like to memory what wildfires are to forests, mm. you know, where actually they need, they, need, they need to happen. Yeah, that makes They're, sense. Um, otherwise, you just get this, this amassing of, of this detritus from centuries and centuries of, of um, metaphorical trees falling. And it's like, it's, li- it's nice that things were lost. Yeah. And this is one of my biggest gripes with the internet where people are like, oh, you can remember it forever. I was learning this week that... Um, you know Conan Conan O'Brien, the late night show host. Mm-hmm. He met his wife during a sketch, during a late night sketch that he was doing. Okay. Where he went somewhere and was like making jokes and you know, like a how it's made thing, where he was visiting someplace. Mm. And so, like the first time that they met and basically fell in love is on video during this episode. And he and his wife, they're both like, no, we we've never watched that. Like we don't watch it. Yeah. Because we like memory to mm. you know i like to remember it how i remembered it rather than what the camera shows yeah for sure and i th- really think there's so much to that that we're 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 kind of missing it missing the point these days because mm. we think we're like well why would memory because it's it's obviously always going to be tinted like rose yeah. tinted or otherwise and it's like why would we trust that why would we want to like why don't right. we take pictures and videos of everything then we can know exactly what happened but the joy is I think the joy is the imagination. Yeah, exactly. And I also think like a historical, maybe another analog for this is Greek statues, right? People always like to point out, well, those were actually painted. Yeah. You know, like they weren't always white. They, they were painted in bold colors. And I think people say that as a kind of like, as an actually moment or as like a gotcha. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an, that's a neat example of the imagination, which is maybe uh, formed through incomplete history because we don't we don't have these things preserved as they were the imagination is a little bit more beautiful than it would have been if it was a complete cultural memory you know what i mean because us thinking of them as these classy white things yeah it's a little bit nicer than if they had actually been painted in like red and blue and stuff yeah i think so cool so there's that idea for for clothes and maybe this also goes with the garments themselves where that patagonia fleece people say it like it's a positive Oh, that will last. Yeah. That will last centuries. 
it's like maybe the fact that it's made of plastic and it, you know it's hard to biodegrade maybe it's better there'd be a wool thing that if you left it out it would just like seep away or something mm-hmm. also this kind of is is parallel to modern communication regarding fashion where it's it takes away a lot of the guesswork like let's say it's young men and women like trying to attract other men and women because that's most of what fashion is anyway now you can kind of just google it it's like what do men find attractive summer 2023 mm-hmm. or what do women like what kind of hats do women like men to wear or something like that mm-hmm. you know, like there's something very lame about that yeah there is you have to kind of yeah just you're just gonna consult the the void basically mm-hmm. the magic eight ball it's like it's best just to kind of guess and then come up with something wacky incidentally my final historical point was dynamic fabrics so in the 70s there was the invention of thermochromatic pigments so that's in like mood rings but it can also be fabric can be dyed with it do you ever have a mood ring i never had a mood ring no Mm. so thermochromatic fabric which is what changes with temperature i have a hat that it's white but then i think it's either when it gets wet or when it changes temperature i still haven't determined because usually those things coincide but it one of those things, it turns blue and it says Nike. Yeah, it's like we have our mood spoons. We have our mood spoons, yeah. And I think that's cool. You, I think, told me about these t-shirts that were thermochromatic. And it's like, obviously, when you're just like, have a thermochromatic t-shirt, it's just going to change color like under your arms. Yeah. And it's going to just like look like you're sweating. Right, because so like, you are. So I think some kind of way of using that in a way that's a bit less gross looking. But then also... This week, Adobe released the Primrose project, which it looks, just looks bad. But it's a dress made of these sequins that are kind of like those smart lights. So they have what are called liquid crystals in them that change color, like based on electric currents. Yeah. So the dress is made of these sequins that are kind of big. They're probably like bigger than a coin. And... She just was like standing in this dress that looked kind of like you're trying to be futuristic, but yes. you're not. And she pressed buttons and then you can program the dress to be in different patterns. But I think it's like that's in the right direction. I don't think having electric dresses is ever no, going to be like, no. I don't think that's ever going to work. There's also at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Montreal, a really, really cool exhibit. If anyone listening is in Montreal or like you can look it up. Um it's a Mary Soul re- retrospective. So it's this artist who she made these these human sculptures, but they're very pop arty. And she had elements of electric, like so it's like a block of wood, but then like their necklace is like a screen, and it's like very sixties, fifties, like because it it was made in the in the sixties and fifties. But I was thinking about electric components in outfits, and I'm like, there's a a touch of me that's like this is interesting and has potential. Like what kind of things think, though? I don't know. Just, just to make thing. yourself a billboard? It's like so you can kind of change the design. It probably would be jewelry, like would be the only Yeah, well we have the watch idea for the Solacene. Yeah. contains your biometrics or whatever. Yeah, maybe. I think stuff like that is kind of cool in Solacene in a way. What about the Nike self lacing shoes? Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like I feel like you shouldn't have to recharge anything. Even the watches and like oh. I don't like Can't go out, gotta charge my shoes. Yeah, like I don't love that. I was also, I woke up this morning thinking about the Jetsons mm-hmm. as, you know, most mornings. Yeah. You know, it's like, here's George Jetson. Mm-hmm. And he's going through his morning routine, but it's like a conveyor belt. Yeah. And it kind of like dresses him, washes him, dries him all while he's still waking up. And like mm-hmm. gives him a, I think brushes his teeth or something like that. That's lame. Yeah. You know, like I'm not a Luddite, but... At some point, you have to say enough's enough because we're just going to become blobs. Mm-hmm. Like, that's lame. Yeah, I think so. Because I was trying to think about innovations and in like washing machines. I don't know, the lawnmower, right? It's like, if you didn't have a lawnmower, you'd actually be, like, it would be better for you. Your health-wise. Yeah. Because you'd, you'd be stronger, kind of. It's true. But it's bad time-wise. So we make these trade-offs. But it's not the case that we should just keep trading convenience for for competence infinitely. 
because then we just become husks. Definitely, there's a point, and we need to like each set that point for ourselves of when do we want to inject a bit of obtuseness. Yeah. Like for us, it's like we want to have a record player, even though it's less convenient, more expensive. Worse. Like worse in a lot of ways, but it's just like we like having the limited choice. Yeah. And, and you have to go nice. over to it and it's not like, hey Siri, play blank. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a good principle in design because Hey Siri, make my t shirt pink. I'm just concerned sure, when you're saying that because of all the the cameras. <laughs> they might listen and check. <laughs> Our three <turn> iPhones <laughs> facing us right now, you mean? Yeah, yeah, but I think they're all turned off. Siri oh, okay. or, or Wi Fi. Cool. <laughs> But in, yeah, in our garments, I think there's like a little bit of room for some technology, but I don't think a lot because there's something off about it. Well, you know, something that, that I was going to mention is with the big hats, or like, mm-hmm. as you call them, statement pieces, I guess is more the fashion appropriate term. I really like, one of the things I, I really do enjoy about the last few years in clothes and trends is the sunglasses. Sunglasses have gotten really wacky mm. and people, it's just a funny thing. Yeah. And they're really zany. So maybe that goes with like smart glasses or goggles or something like that. I don't really like that idea. Yeah, sunglasses have just kind of actually gone crazy where people, something that annoys me is that people say, oh, there's no rules anymore. You know, fashion's wild. It's like, it's really, it's not. It's still, especially for men's, it's incredibly rigid and principled and you won't be able to find a pair of jeans that have pockets on the side because like, well, we just don't do that for jeans. Yeah. And it's like, but I thought we will post that kind of nonsensical, like upholding traditions for the sake of it. But sunglasses, we like everything, like this year people are just wearing like those cycling mm-hmm. shades or whatever, even when they're just walking around. Do you remember clout goggles? I remember those, yeah. Just like these funny, just like things that make you laugh. Yeah. I like that. That's why I was going out with the sea star, just like shapes, mm. shapes that make you smile, make you laugh. We should wear more like that. I remember I was always fascinated is is not even a strong enough word, obsessed with the idea of making my own t-shirts once I realized it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Because I remember, I think we were just walking through a store once, like a Walmart or something, like a big store. And I saw those iron-on transfers, mm-hmm. you know, those things that you could just put a design on your own t-shirt. And I was like, what's that? And my parents explained to me. And I was just like... It was a it was a radical light bulb moment because I had just always thought of clothes as just a thing that was made that you saw in a store. Mm. But then it's like I can print anything I want off the internet. So if you had a blank T-shirt right now and you could have one like iron-on square, like size of a piece of paper on the or wherever it would be, mm. what would you want it to be? Because for me, it would be I'd want a blue T-shirt I don't think this would iron on so well. And a bright orangey yellow starfish to just go right in the middle. Cool. Yeah. I don't exactly, I haven't put as much thought into it as you but have. But if you, right now, on the spot. Something that comes to mind is a kind of old-timey advertisement. I've been really on that, like, aesthetic interest right now. Like, those kind of propaganda-ish, <laughs> like, signs and stuff. We I want like you. Those. Not we want you, because I'm sure that exists on a t-shirt, but, like, just an old like ad for apples. Yeah, I mean, and, and people would say, oh, go on Etsy, you can find the starfish shells. And it's not the point. Like yeah. I was so, what was radical to me was the idea that I could do it myself. Yeah. Also just a small note in the solo scene. I don't like, I don't know when it happened or why, but I don't like how all shirts now that have things on, t-shirts that is, it's always small thing on the front, big graphic on the back. Yeah. But there's something ugly about that. It was cool at first. I guess it's because... When people are staring at you, you don't want them trying to read. This goes with tiny text, don't like tiny text, or trying to discern the details of the graphic. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they're walking behind you, you know, it just catches their catches their eye without distracting from your face, I suppose. Absolutely. Also, historically, I'm thinking about hair. Hair counts as fashion, right? Definitely. Hair is very lame today. I think because of pop culture and mass culture, probably more than ever just because of how quick trends go now and how how much you kind of have to be in it and paying attention mm-hmm. especially for men culture just kind of cycles through one haircut to the next mm-hmm. it's like first it's this then it's this five years later it's this it's a little bit ridiculous 
And so what I really like is the idea of like the medieval friar who has like the ugly bowl cut or the monks who have their head shaved. I guess maybe the closest analog today is the military. They still have to have a buzz cut. Mm-hmm. Or like in feudal Japan, you had like samurai and then it would be a big dishonor if they cut their their tail, right, mm-hmm. of the hair. So maybe this is also a historical notion of color coding or hair coding different classes or different industries. It's like if you're this, you wear this color. If you are this job, you have this kind of hair. And we kind of do that to ourselves these days. You know what I mean? People talk about, say, a tech bro uniform being like a quarter zip and Mm. sneakers or something like that. But we can kind of subvert it in the solo scene of trying to find like a signature look that genuinely fits you. Yeah, well, I think think these days, yeah, we value individual expression over like submission to any kind of ideal like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like people would say, oh, just because I'm in the church, I have to cut my hair this way. That's that's barbaric or something. But I'm just talking about, I think, despite the seeming rigidity of these practices, there's a lot of actual creativity there. Yeah. I remember a few years ago when Kanye tried to basically create a new haircut and it just looked like patches on his hair. And it maybe was not the the most intuitively aesthetic thing to how our eyes have been attuned, but I respected the creativity of it. Because how many new haircuts are there ever? Not many. <laughs> I mean, I you obviously have talked about how few options there are for men. But there's like I remember as a kid when I'd go and like look through the magazines waiting for a haircut and I would just be similarly irritated of just like these all look the same. You mean for men's or women's? For women. Yeah. And I know women have like way more options because like it's more traditional to have long hair and you can do so many different lengths but still irritated and someone we need like the the hairdresser of the future so that's the history of fashion in the solo scene we are running a bit late for the episode so we're going to continue with the future stuff next week so we can really dive deep into the future because that's what we love to do here at solo scene by a zine solo zine